Welcome to Stories of Emotional Granularity, a podcast that surveys the diversity of subjective feelings that are available for our experience. This week's episode is a departure from this podcast's typical format. Instead of sharing other people's stories about an emotion of the week, I want to discuss a problem that this podcast has been having, and I want to ask for your help in creating a solution. What's at issue is a gender imbalance in the voices that are being heard on the podcast. Two of those voices, Laura and Shanna Haskins, were guests in the same episode a few weeks ago, the episode about trust. After that episode was released, both Laura and Shannon pointed out the same thing to me, which is that all six of the guests in that episode were women. Why didn't you talk to men about this? Uh, They asked. And that's a good question. After my conversations with Laura and Shannon about this, I went back and I checked the gender distribution of all of the previous episodes of this podcast. And I saw that yes, the episodes on the emotions of Yugen and compersion, as well as the one on trust, uh, featured exclusively female guests. And in none of the 14 episodes of this podcast that have been released so far have men consisted of more than 50% of the voices of the guests that you hear from. So um, I went ahead and I looked at each episode. I divided the gender identity of the guests in these episodes into three categories uh, of gender, which are self-identified women, self-identified men, and gender fluid or non-binary as a third category. And I I know that things are not always just that simple. Um, But the... uh, distinction between men and women was what really caught people's attention. And so there is a transcript, kind of a podcast notes version of this podcast that is on my website, uh, the website for the podcast stories of emotional granularity. And I uh, encourage you to take a look at the specific gender distribution of each episode. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so, you know, I've interviewed uh, 44 people for this podcast so far, and you haven't heard from all of them yet, because what I like to do is to have more than one perspective on any given emotion. So it's going to take time for me to fill out all of these emotions. There's over 200 of them that I'm going to be covering over time. But I can tell you that of those 44 people that I've interviewed for the podcast so far, 27 of them have been women, and only 13 have been men, and three have been non-binary or gender-fluid people, uh, making up the remainder. That's 63% women, 30% men, and 7% Uh, non-binary or gender fluid. That's twice as many women as men. That's a pretty strong 
uh, imbalance, a dramatically uh, out-of-kilter representation of gender in this podcast. So, um, you know, it's easy to say that this podcast ought to be representative. And from a certain perspective, I agree with that. Um, I think in everything that we do, we ought to aim for uh, accurate representation of the diversity uh, of, of all humanity in many different dimensions, uh, ethnicity, class, as well as gender, other aspects as well. So I'm not trying to downplay that. However, I do want to point out that for one individual doing a podcast, um, it can be quite challenging to find guests that are representative in that way. So um, I want to talk about that issue and how this podcast has been designed and its implications about the way that I ought to move forward with it because I want to be conscientious about this kind of thing and I'm genuinely having a struggle about what this ought to look like, what the right thing to do is. So from one perspective, you could say that this gender imbalance, you know, though it's not perfect, it's really not a remarkable problem. Uh, after all, it is not the primary purpose of this podcast to provide a statistically representative coverage of emotional experience. And I want to explain what I mean to you by statistically representative coverage. Um, I, I have actually intentionally avoided even trying to do statistically representative coverage of the kinds of people who feel emotion uh, for several reasons. And please have patience with me as I'm trying to explain this to you. To be honest, uh, fundamentally, I am more interested in subjective qualitative experiences than I am in mathematical models of population statistics. That's why I'm interested in emotions in the first place. I'm really curious about subjective things rather than objective reality and facts and data points and the patterns in those. It's not that I'm completely uncurious about uh, quantitative data and patterns in that, but I can't do it all. And in my life, I have chosen a kind of research that focuses in on subjective qualitative issues. And the qualitative point of view, I'm not saying that it's superior to the quantitative approach or inferior for that matter. This is just about where my personal curiosity leads me when I'm doing research, when I'm doing projects like this podcast. Secondly, there isn't any intellectually coherent evidence-based approach for measuring the prevalence of specific emotions among humans as a whole or between different groups of people. It's not that people aren't trying to do that, but they haven't really come up with a coherent fact-based system that is reliable yet. There's not any academic consensus about how to define emotion. And again, that doesn't mean that academics haven't come up with definitions for emotions. They've come up with many definitions 
of what emotion is and how emotions are different from each other. But they disagree with each other. There are conflicting camps. And this is not a settled matter at all. So there's also no credible, widely agreed upon method for measuring particular emotions. Many researchers have proposed measures of emotions, but these proposals have lacked widespread support among academics because different groups of academics disagree about the fundamental nature of what emotion is and about the differences between particular emotions. There are many published research papers that purport to measure specific aspects of emotion, but the methods that these studies use are actually highly controversial because of the way that they dramatically narrow and decontextualize emotions, operationalizing them in order to make quantitative measurement of them possible. To some extent, when you make emotion quantitative, you lose a good amount of what maybe makes emotion so relevant, which is when we feel it, it's subjectivity itself. And there's a great deal of disagreement amongst academics about issues like this. And so, um, you know, on top of that, on top of those limitations of psychological research into emotion, there is a serious crisis of confidence in the field of psychology, as people are finally owning up to the fact that shoddy research methods have been rife in studies published in prestigious, peer-reviewed journals. What's more, the economic structure of academia has resulted in outright, outright fraud. Um, and this appears to be the case, for example, this summer, uh, with dozens of studies that have been conducted um, or led by the famous and wealthy Harvard professor Francesca Gino. Um, and she has been accused of having dozens of her studies um, uh, no longer reliable. So uh, psychological studies that have been cited for years as if their results were reliable fact established through evidence and experimentation and rigorous uh, standards of that are now under review and often it's being discovered that what psychologists claimed to know has not really been founded in rigorously established evidence. Um, a lot of uh, social science has a problem with um, not being replicated. Um, one researcher will do uh, a kind of study and um, it, boy, it has really dramatic findings. And then other researchers try to replicate that study and they don't get the same findings. And so in science, that's a real problem. Why is that happening? And part of the reason that that's happening is that there's a lot of pressure on academics to publish dramatic findings and positive findings. Uh, you won't get published in a prestigious journal if you find out that there's not a result, that there's not something dramatic as the result of your experiment, even though that finding is 
equally important um, to our study of the human mind and how it works. A third factor is that even if there was some kind of reliable, coherent, fact-based method for measuring emotions statistically, the plain fact is that I would not have the resources to engage in that kind of research. Uh, this is, podcast is an independent project. Um, I am not a member of any kind of large organization at all. I'm a freelance consultant. And, you know, this podcast is exploring a different emotion every week. And if I were to try to conduct methodologically rigorous, statistically representative, quantitative surveys that would be capable of providing me information to understand the prevalence of the all of these different specific emotions among different groups, that would require a massive amount of time and money. No such study has ever been conducted, not even by professional academics. Um, and you know, that's in part because there's no sound theoretical basis for even beginning such research, but also because of the overwhelming investment that it would require. So there's just no reliable material upon which I could base a program for recruiting guests in such a way uh, as to ensure that the people that I talk to are statistically representative of the kind of people who most often experience any specific emotion. Fourth issue um, for why I maybe shouldn't change what I'm doing with this um, podcast. A fourth factor is that emotional experience is varied. Different people define specific emotions in different ways. Even a single person may have several different ways of thinking about what a particular emotion is. There is remarkable diversity within even a supposedly simple emotional concept, such as sadness, for example. Just the word sad can mean a huge number of different things. Because emotion is inherently ambiguous, I've avoided in this podcast making claims about patterns in the kind of people who feel emotions or the idea of who feels a certain level of emotion the most or which is the most common version of an emotion. I've avoided taking sides in disagreements about the definitions of specific emotions. And instead, I've designed this podcast as a project in qualitative description of the variety of emotions that exist. My goal is to document the range of human emotional experience, presenting a variety of perspectives with each emotion without trying to elevate any particular perspective as more true than any other, or providing a quantitative description about the distribution of these kinds of versions of these emotions. Even within this limited scope, the work of this podcast can't be definitive. I'm not going to be able to get to the absolute ends uh, of a complete project documenting all the emotions that human beings are capable of. What I want to do is to give an idea of 
the fact that there are a huge number that we take for granted and that they're worth paying attention to. So these are some of the thoughts that I've been having that nudge me toward thinking that perhaps the gender imbalance among the guests on this podcast is not a serious problem or not serious enough for me to really grapple with it. That it's just a manifestation of the non-representative design that I've chosen for the podcast. I ask people if they want to participate as guests and whoever is willing to help me with this project, I am grateful for their help. And um, I have to take who can help me with it. So up until this point, you know, I haven't chosen to target particular kinds of people uh, to be interviewed because of their demographic identities. I've just looked for people who are interested and willing to talk about their feelings. However, when I think of the implications of this approach, um, the idea creeps into my head that maybe I shouldn't be so fast to dismiss concerns about the smaller number of men speaking as guests on this podcast when compared to women. And, you know, I have to ask myself, why are there twice as many women as men that I have interviewed for this podcast? I never intended to seek out women as guests in particular. I reached out to roughly the same number of women as men, asking them to participate in this podcast. But for some reason, I ended up interviewing a huge amount of women in comparison to the relatively small number of men that you've heard from. What is the reason for this pattern? Why did this pattern emerge when I had no intention of producing such a pattern. There's more than one possible explanation for this, this pattern emerging, this gender imbalance. The explanation that best fits popular stereotypes is that men have less to say about emotion than women do because men just feel emotion less than women do. That is a popular idea that you hear a lot out there. Um, recently, this stereotype was on prominent display in a recently released uh, episode of the second season of And Just Like That, which is the cable TV successor to the long-running show Sex and the City. This was the first episode of the second season. And that show features um, lots of women having lots of emotions about lots of things, exhibiting those emotions, discussing those emotions, while around them, the men in their lives mostly just seem not to feel very much about anything. They don't talk about their feelings. And the writers of that show make that theme of male emotional emptiness, blankness, explicit in this first episode of the second season. There's a character that comes right out and says it, quote, you're overthinking this. Men aren't that emotional, unquote. In another scene of this show, 
of this episode, one woman explains her relationship with a man to another woman, saying to her, quote, we're not a couple, unquote. And then the second woman reacts by asking, quote, does he know that? Because men are dumb, unquote. And then the two women have a little bit more of a conversation and they conclude with the declaration that, quote, men are dumb with feelings. Men are dumb with feelings. Are men dumb with feelings? Are men just not that emotional? Is that why I have fewer men than women as guests for this podcast about emotion? Well, it is a possibility. Um, instead of just offering my opinion on this subject, though, I want to look at what empirical research has to say about gender and emotion. So I'm going to get into the weeds here. And um, as I discuss this research, I want to let you know my source. I'm going to be uh, using a chapter on the topic of gender and emotion from the 2018 published fourth edition of the Handbook of Emotions. That's the Handbook of Emotions, fourth edition, edited by Lisa Feldman Barrett, Michael Lewis, and Jeanette M. Haviland Jones. The chapter that I'm going to be referring to was written by Leslie R. Brody, Judith A. Hall, and Lenissa R. Stokes, and it surveys the state of research into the ways that gender may impact emotional experience and expression. Citations of the relevant studies that are cited in their chapter are included in the show transcript that I referred to earlier, uh, the transcript of what I'm saying now. If you're interested in reading further, look into those and look into this whole um, handbook of emotions. It's a, a great source on many subjects, not just the relationship of gender and emotion. The discussion between emotional experience and emotional expression is one of the central ideas discussed by the authors. Let me be clear about what that means. Emotional experience is what you feel on the inside. You know, that's the, the emotion as a subjective experience. Emotional expression is how you show something about what you're feeling on the inside to the outside world. Okay, those are two different things. They're related to each other in some way, but they are different. And the way that people feel on the inside doesn't always match the way that they present themselves to the outside world. Sometimes that means that they're being dishonest about their emotions. Sometimes it just means that they're being selective about the way that they display emotion. There's a lot of different complex ways that those two things don't match up. It isn't necessarily, therefore, the case that the people who make the most dramatic displays of emotion are in fact more emotional than people who appear to be relatively 
subdued. So if one gender tends to make a more prominent display of an emotion, that does not necessarily mean that gender actually feels more emotion than the other gender does. The authors emphasize this point by citing a study that was published in the year 2000 in uh, the Psychology of Women Quarterly Journal, finding that adherence to gender stereotypes about emotion is stronger in the expression of emotion than in the internal experience of emotion itself. In two other studies, the facial expressions of emotion by research participants appeared to be different on average between men and women as they watched a film, even though there were no gender differences in the emotions that the research participants said that they felt during the film. So let me repeat that. The research participants said that they felt the same as they were watching the film. However, um, the uh, research participants who were women had more prominent facial expressions than the men did. So there you have an example of one gender making a more prominent display of emotion, an expression of emotion that was stronger, more evident, more obvious, even though the feelings, the actual emotional experience was the same for both groups. So you can't take it for granted that just because one group is displaying emotion more that they actually feel emotion more. And that direction of research suggests that men and women can experience the very same emotions and yet express them differently or express their emotions to a different extent. The gender stereotype that was expressed in the TV show and just like that, is that women are more emotional than men, and that men are just dumb with feelings, as they put it. But it could be, actually, just that there's a tendency among men to express their emotions less, even if they feel emotion just as keenly as women do. In fact, several studies indicate that men have a higher level of physiological arousal associated with emotional experiences measured through neuroendocrine function and blood pressure. Other studies uh, attempt to measure uh, levels of emotional experience through other physiological markers such as cardiovascular reactivity and skin conductivity and they show inconsistent differences between men and women. So that difference is something important in itself. The fact that you have some physiological indicators indicating a difference between genders and other physiological indicators suggesting no difference um, or inconsistent differences between genders. And sometimes suggesting that men might have a higher level of physiological arousal. There's an inconsistency with these physiological indicators, such as skin conductivity, cardiovascular 
uh, reactivity, neuroendocrine function, blood pressure, right? The fact that these measures are showing different results indicates that maybe there isn't um, such a great link between these physiological indicators and what is actually going on inside a person's experience of emotion. And further confusing matters are additional studies of emotional dynamics in heterosexual relationships, which observe that men, when confronted with emotionally provocative interactions with their partners, have a higher tendency than women to become less emotionally expressive. Now, that's less emotionally expressive. It doesn't mean that they're having less emotion. It means that when men are confronted with emotionally provocative displays by their female partners in heterosexual relationships, the men tend to restrain their emotional expressiveness. So it could be, if that research is found to be consistent, um, it could be that at the very times when men's emotions are being provoked and become higher, women are experiencing men as being less emotionally expressive. And that, if you think about it, can contribute to the stereotype that men feel fewer emotions than women because women are being emotionally intense and provocative in those kinds of experiences with men and men are responding to that by feeling a kind of response that they have to subdue their emotions so you can have a kind of misunderstanding between the genders that makes men appear to be less emotionally activated than they actually are but in describing all of this kind of research. I am using phrases like it could be or it may be if this research is consistent. I'm kind of using language that hedges what I'm talking about with the results and there's good reason for that. There needs to be a lot of caution in the way that we interpret psychological research, social science research in general. One of those reasons is that the association of events measured by researchers doesn't always suggest a causal relationship between those events. Furthermore, the link between externally measurable factors and internal experience of emotion is really not that well established. Think about those studies where one physical, one physiological indicator suggests a certain pattern of emotion in men and women. And another physiological indicator suggests something else. We ought to pay attention to when there are differences like that because it suggests that there's something wrong with the way that we're presuming that those indicators link to emotion. So even the interpretation of external expressions of emotion is fraught with difficulty. As, for example, a single facial expression can be interpreted as having many different emotional meanings. Sometimes uh, a person can be uh, appearing to smile to one person, but another person interprets that as a grimace or even a threat. It depends upon the context that you have 
with that facial expression. There's really a lot more interpretation of those expressions that we take for granted. Uh, it makes it difficult to be objective about what kind of expression a person's face is really showing. Other studies that are in this chapter that I've referred to, a great chapter, um, but other studies that they reference rely on self-reports of emotional experiences. That's people saying what they have felt. But, you know, researchers, again, have found that both men and women tend to reinterpret their emotional experiences over time to become more aligned with gender stereotypes about how emotions should be experienced and expressed. So this chapter cites a study in which um, they looked at how people represented, how they talked about the emotions that they were feeling closer to the time of the actual emotion and then again later on. And they found that the more time expired between the emotion and the time that people expressed it, both men and women changed their descriptions of how they felt, their expression of that emotion, to match gender stereotypes. So, you know, that study alone really suggests that you can't rely purely on emotional self-reports to get an objective measure of the extent of emotional feelings and then quantitatively compare that between men and women. There's just a whole lot of subjectivity going on, a lot of self-stereotyping, not just other people saying that you ought to feel something, but you reinterpreting your own experience. Um, in order to match what you think ought to be experienced. So, there are lots of limitations in the scope of the studies that have been done. And I, I'm not meaning to put down these researchers. They're doing the best that they can. But this is a really difficult subject to try to objectively study emotion, which is itself subjective. Um, but there's limitations that I've talked about. There's the crisis of data fraud and methodological inadequacy in social science research. Um, and, you know, I think given that, the most responsible approach is to regard current academic understandings about the relationship of emotion to gender to be tentative and suggestive. All of these studies have some really interesting things to suggest, but we just don't know enough. We don't have enough methodological rigor and trust in psychological research right now as a profession to confidently say that we really know uh, that we can just take these studies for granted. And so in contradiction to the confidence with which stereotypes about gender and emotion are presented, there is actually quite a bit about the subject that remains uncertain. And I think we need to be honest about that. When we don't know something, um, we can try to put a little bit too much emphasis on the slight bit of evidence that we have. But right now we're kind of in the fog about this. And we have little bits of clues, but it's difficult to put them together. 
to form a really reliable picture. You know, one thing also as we're talking about this that is so essential to keep in mind is that gender is a lot more ambiguous than just biological sex. You know, I've been talking about men and women, but gender is about a lot more than that. And for that matter, even biological sex is not as simple as just a division between men and women. Biologically, there's diversity within each, you know, biological sex. It's not just about X and Y chromosomes, but the manifestations of those. And furthermore, the contents of X and Y chromosomes actually vary from individual to individual. And hormonal development during pregnancy can affect these kinds of things. Um, there are um, people who are born intersex. Um, so, you know, I've been talking about men and women because I'm trying to grapple with gender stereotypes about emotion, about who feels more, who talks about emotion more. Are men dumb with their feelings? Okay, so I'm talking about men and women. But, you know, there are some people who identify as neither men nor women. There are some people who identify as a bit of both. One of our guests in the first and second season has uh, identified as dual gender, having both a, a female personality and a male personality. Okay, there are lots of ways to think about this. And the world is much bigger than just the gender binary. Although for many people, the gender binary is what they experience. It's how they see the world. So even taking a look at these ideas of gender and emotion, it gets much more complex than we could have a representation of in any study that just compares men and women. So, you know, the thing is that this is not a neutral, unbiased thing to have a study that compares just men and women. The presumption that there are significant biologically based differences between men and women is associated with one particular traditional mode of gender ideology. And there are other ideologies about gender that exist, proposing different ideas about gender and sex differences and their causes. This has been actually a controversy over a long period of time. Some people like to depict the uh, uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity, the fluidity with which a lot of people are experiencing gender now as some kind of new invention without precedent. But if you take a look at ancient literature and research into what different cultures were doing um, for a long, long time, um, there has been a lot of questioning about this. The ancient Greeks proposing that there have been hermaphrodites, um, you know, and having divinities uh, that move between uh, different uh, genders. Um, many groups around the world having more than one gender that they recognize, not just men and women. It's not just an invention of our current society. And in addition to all of the caveats that I've already mentioned, 
when we see an academic study that describes gender differences in emotional expression or emotional experience, we need to be cautious and not jump to conclusions about the causes of those differences. Even if researchers definitively concluded that there are differences in the emotional dynamics of men and women, we still would not know the cause of those differences. If men and women have differences in emotional experience or emotional expression, those differences might have their roots in biological tendencies, but they also might be a result of cultural and social factors. Now, I want to make it clear that although I am a professional researcher, I am not an academic. I'm not a scientist. And so if there are academics uh, who work in this area uh, and they're listening to this podcast, I encourage you to get in touch and tell me what I'm getting wrong about this research. I'm honestly doing the best I can. But I work as a research consultant. And I do the kind of research that's known as qualitative research, in-depth qualitative research, and not just, you know, in-depth as a gesture, but, but truly, you know, taking a good, long, slow time to try to understand ideas. And so I study emotions as ideas, not through quantitative representations of ideas. I'm not a specialist in quantitative research. What I do is use interviewing techniques that are specifically designed to help people talk about their experiences in terms of their emotional significance. I get people to talk about their feelings. The interviews that I do are purposefully long and slow, and sometimes a bit repetitive, um, really circling back around to try to understand these ideas, creating an immersive experience of an interview within which people are able to revisit emotionally pivotal moments in their lives and reflect upon what the meaning of those experiences seems to have been. Now, over three decades of this work, I have personally done directly thousands upon thousands of these kinds of interviews. I've interviewed roughly the same number of men and as women um, during that time. Because I don't do quantitative research, I can't claim to have come to any objective conclusions on the subject, but my overall impression of the men and women that I have interviewed is that the men are every bit as emotional and just as capable of talking about their emotions as women. That's been my experience. Um, and that's an anecdotal perspective. I acknowledge that, but it is an anecdotal perspective based on a very large number of anecdotes, thousands upon thousands of them, over a very long period of time. And yes, I have interviewed men who have difficulty talking about their emotions, but I have also interviewed many women who have difficulty talking about their emotions. I have seen a wide variety of emotional experience and emotional expression within 
each one of those genders. And the impression that I've arrived at through decades of interviewing is that women and men have much stronger similarities than differences when it comes to emotion. Of course, as a qualitative researcher, my work is not designed to identify differences. Understand that. So quantitative techniques are what you really need to use. They're what's required to come to reliable findings about differences. So if there were differences there, I would not be qualified to talk about them. What I'm saying is that I don't experience them. That's not what I've seen. So even as I urge you to critically question the academic research that's been done on the subject of gender and emotion, I want to say this, you also should take what I have to say on the subject with a big grain of salt. Critically question what I'm saying here. On the other hand, if you listen to the men who have been guests on this podcast, I think you'll find them to be quite articulate about their emotions. They're quite capable of feeling emotion and and talking about what that emotion is. They're sharing things from the heart, just as much as the women on the podcast are. Um, I can tell you, I didn't need to do any extra work to get the men to talk about their feelings. I didn't interview the men and the women differently. Uh, for those people that I did talk to, um, you know, the men and the women were equally able to talk about their emotions. Now, you know, maybe there's a self-selection with that. I, I am talking to people who, just by agreeing to come on this podcast, we know that these are going to be people who at least are more open to the idea of talking about their emotion. And there's every chance that just in that way, um, we know that these people are maybe not representative of the population as a whole. You need to question uh, all of this kind of basis of what it is that I'm talking about. Um, but I think that kind of questioning is actually something we always ought to be engaged in. Um, given how much we don't know about emotion and gender, I think it's really important for us to avoid the posture of false confidence, of pretending that we're experts about this thing. Emotion is mysterious. And so one helpful step in communicating about this issue is to be more precise about the language that we decide to use when we're describing patterns in quantitative research in gendered expressions of emotions. When we're talking about this, instead of saying something like, men are less emotionally expressive than women, for example, maybe we could say, as a group, men tend to be less emotionally expressive uh, than women as a group. Or on average, men are more likely to exhibit low levels of emotional expression than women. You know, let's say that instead of saying men are this and women are that. And maybe you think I'm being a bit nitpicky with my language here, but these things mean something really different. 
Um, and it's important to pay attention to that difference because a lot of our uh, stereotypical beliefs about what emotion is according to gender arise out of uh, the kind of um, mixing of our ideas, um, of uh, a sloppy kind of confusion between these ways of talking about emotional experience. So if we simply declare that men are less emotionally expressive than women, we're making a definitive statement about all men. It's on the order of saying something like giraffes are bigger than beetles. And that is true of all giraffes. All giraffes are bigger than all beetles. Even baby giraffes are bigger than beetles. That's a definitive statement. And that kind of statement communicates that absolute distinction. So if we say that men are less emotionally expressive than women, we're also communicating an absolute distinction, a separation between men and women. So that if a person is a man, we can be certain that that person will be less emotionally expressive than any woman in the same way that we can be sure that whatever size a giraffe is, it's going to be larger than an insect, a beetle. So this kind of gender absolutism, it sounds cartoonish, but it's actually really common in the way that we're talking about things. Even in the chapter uh, that I have uh, gotten a lot of great research from in a well-written chapter, the authors are making this mistake. They use phrases like, men are less emotionally expressive than women. Men are this, women are this. Instead of saying that there are these patterns, uh, that these things are trends on average with a lot of diversity. Uh, now, of course, there are even worse examples. Um, this kind of gender absolutism has been promoted in popular media, such as the 1992 book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus which was based in just terrible, um, terrible ideas that, that were not really scientifically supported. Um, that book actually, if you think about it, it proposed that men and women are so profoundly, categorically different that it's as if they're alien species suited to live on entirely separate planets with totally different emotions and different modes of communication. And, you know, that is just not an accurate depiction of differences between genders. I mean, there are differences between men and women, of course, on average. Those are differences mostly of tendency rather than absolute distinction. Consider this, for example, the relatively uncontroversial claim that there's a difference in height between men and women on average. Okay, Men tend to be taller than women. That's a tendency. But there is a huge range of height among men. You go from about three feet to higher than eight feet in, in the really extremely tall men that have existed. That's a, a huge range, you know, of, of five feet or, or more. 
within men. And, and there is also a, a huge range of variety in heights of women. There are shorter women and taller women. And if you look at the range of height for men and for women, those two ranges have a really big overlap. There are a whole lot of men and women who are between the uh, height of five feet and six feet. Okay. Um, I'm five foot 10 and maybe a little bit more. I don't know. Uh, something around that area, which is about average for men. But here's the funny thing about averages. You know, in a given population, if it's a large population, um, often uh, with something like height, where there's a lot of uh, variability, very few people are exactly the average. Okay, I tend to be just about exactly the average, but a large number of men are taller than me uh, or shorter than me. And the same is true with women. Very few women are exactly average. So if you presume that women are going to be the uh, average height, you're going to be excluding a lot of women from that experience. And maybe there's something similar going on with emotion, right? So, you know, we need to think about this in terms of the way that we're defining genders. I mean, if you have this definitive kind of statement, like men are less emotionally expressive than women. What if we do that with height? Men are taller than women. That suggests that all men are taller than all women. That if you have a man, that is going to be a taller person than a woman. If you have a woman, it's going to be shorter than a man. So, um... You know, uh, it is true that the average height of all men as a population, that average height is taller than the average height of all women, but tallness is not actually exclusive to men. So we can't have that definitive idea of gender in terms of height. If a man is five feet tall, that doesn't make him a woman. If a woman is six and a half feet tall, that doesn't make her a man. And the same is true with emotional experience and emotional expressiveness. So, you know, I've talked about a good deal of research into the subject. And the fact is, yes, there are some studies that suggest that women on average tend to be more emotionally expressive than men on average. But as I've already discussed, these average differences are not as absolute as they might superficially appear to be. Some research indicates that men are more likely on average to express certain emotions more than women, more strongly than women as well. But even if we accept the overall finding that women on average tend to be more expressive uh, with emotion than men on average, there remains a remarkable overlap in the emotional expressiveness of men and women. There is a wide range of emotional expressiveness within each gender. Some men are extremely expressive of their emotions, and some women are extremely unexpressive of their emotions. Most men and most women exist within a more moderate range of emotional expressiveness, but 
they are not more men and more women than those who are out on the extremes. There's more than one way to be a man. There's more than one way to be a woman. That's why we have uh, the whole idea the whole genre of romantic comedy because you can't just say well men and women if they're heterosexual are attracted to each other so anybody will do the whole idea of romance and the mystery of it and um, the, the drama of it the difficulty of it is based on the idea that you can't just make general presumptions about how a man is going to act and how a woman is going to act and Finding out those differences of individuality is part of what romance is all about. It's part of what actually falling in love with the person is about. It's finding out who they are, not just how they're a man or a woman. And they, they meet that role. So for this reason, it's just not accurate to make definitive statements such as women are more emotionally expressive than men. Men and women have more similarities than differences in the ways that they express their emotions. Men are not from Mars and women are not from Venus. They're both from planet Earth. And the differences that they have are a matter of emphasis within that shared earthly experience that they have. Well, okay. So that's what the research suggests and what it doesn't suggest. And um, that's a discussion of uh, where the areas of ambiguity and, you know, ignorance still are in our understanding of what gender is and how it relates to the emotions that we feel and the ways that we tend to express them. But we still have that question that I brought up at the beginning of this podcast, which is why are there twice as many women as guests on this podcast as men? When I never ever intended to have such a lopsided collection of interviews. Why is that the case? Well, um, you know, the truth is, if I'm going to be honest, I really don't know. I don't have a, I don't have a clear answer for that. I don't think, furthermore, that given the information that seems to be available, the research that has done in the state that it's in, that it's really possible for me to come up with a definitive answer to that question of why there are more women on this podcast as guests. I, I simply know that there are has been a gender imbalance in the podcast. And I've decided that that matters. Um, and it's something that I'm going to try to correct because it, it's worth paying attention to this. Now, uh, even as I say that, on the other hand, I think of Carl Sagan's saying that extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. You know, and I'm thinking about this and to me, the idea that men don't have emotional lives that are equal to women's emotional lives, that's an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary proof. And it seems strange to suppose that almost half of humanity would be so deeply psychologically inferior and deprived in their internal lives as that. 
To me, the simpler explanation is that for some cultural reason, men don't feel as comfortable talking about their emotions as women do. Now, if that's the case, men's relative silence about emotions would be itself, if you think about it, an expression of an emotion of discomfort. It's an emotional aversion to showing emotion, which is kind of ironic. Now, of course, on the other hand, maybe this is my bias as a man, that I don't want to think of myself as stupid and inferior. Uh, whichever is the case, I think that further explanation is called for. And I, you know, I do also want to recognize that this is a case in which men are being depicted as inferior um, compared to women. But there is another aspect of this in which the emotionality of women has been sometimes depicted as itself an inferior thing. And that men are superior because they're supposedly more rational and less emotional than women in business, for example, where they often say uh, that they take pride in the idea that they can just make rational decisions in business and they just leave emotion out of it. And, you know, I specifically work as a consultant in finding the emotional motivations that exist in business for consumers, uh, for people who are working in business as well. And I've found, you know, there really isn't an area of business actually that is devoid of emotion. Um, and the need to appear in control as an emotion tends to be a motivator for this, this claim of, uh, you know, being merely intellectual, merely rational, and therefore in control of what we think. The, the human mind is so much more complex than we often give it credit for. And, and we don't ever un understand everything about it. But, um, you know, I've been referring to this one chapter, which is out of a book, which has been um, uh, edited together, uh, along with other people, by a really wonderful researcher into emotion. And she's done so much work on this subject. And I hold a great deal of respect for her. And if she were listening to this podcast right now, I would just be be tickled. I presume that she isn't. She's a very, very busy person. Um, but she has another book out that I do want to recommend to anyone who is interested in research on emotions. And that is the book, How Emotions Are Made. And this researcher's name is Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she has in that book this thing to say. I'm just going to read part of this paragraph of what she has to say about the experience that she has had in experimental quantitative research that she does in uh, her laboratory setting as an academic. So she's doing the kind of quantitative academic work that honestly I don't do. Um, so here's what she has to say about this. When we ask these types of questions in my lab to male and female test subjects to describe their feelings from memory, the women report feeling emotion more than the men do on average. 
That is, the women believe they are more emotional than men, and the men agree. The one exception is anger, as subjects believe that men are angrier. However, when the same people record their emotional experiences as they occur in everyday life, there are no sex differences. Some men and women are very emotional and some are not. Likewise, the female brain is not hardwired for emotion or empathy, and the male brain is not hardwired for stoicism or rationality. Now, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work has kind of coalesced around this model of emotion that I think makes a lot of sense. It's a constructivist model of emotion, which it kind of respects the brain as a living organ. I mean, as a living organ that's also connected to a body. It develops as we live. It adapts to our experiences. It's not a piece of electrical mechanical equipment in the, in the way that uh, a computer is. A computer, I mean, a computer is a fairly flexible device as electronic devices go. But it doesn't grow new circuits as it experiences the world. Even, um, you know, the latest AI models that are out there, um, they don't actually develop new hardware in response to the world. Our brains do. Um, they, they actually grow uh, or shrink depending on, on the circumstances, according to what happens with us. And they are complex, not fully understood systems of adapting to an unpredictable world and of connecting with other minds. And so the constructivist model of emotion that Lisa Feldman Barrett has suggests that, no, it's a mistake to say that we're hardwired and that just because we're born as, for example, men or women, doesn't mean that we come with a recipe, uh, an instruction kind of manual that uh, spells out the way that we're going to feel and that we're going to be more angry or more sad or more empathetic or more rational. It's not hardwiring in the brain. It's all soft. It's all fluid. And so the way that we experience emotion is that we construct these emotions as concepts as we develop in association with other people. And we do that through language. We do that by developing these words, which are expressions that refer to this subjective thing that we kind of share this understanding that we're beginning to talk about. Even as these words can have multiple meanings, we have a certain range of the sort of emotion that they refer to. And so what that means is that there's not some kind of universal set of emotions that everybody on earth has because that's just what we're genetically programmed to have. And that also means that men and women are not emotionally pre-programmed to have a certain set of emotions or a certain level of emotionality and that our concepts of 
maleness or femaleness, being a woman, being a man, or being gender fluid for that matter, those kinds of definitions shape what our brains do with emotions. They influence the construction of our emotional lives. These things are socially, culturally constructed, which means that, okay, we actually have a wide range of social and cultural experiences on the earth. Even within one cultural system, there's a lot of diversity going on. And so when we look at men and women and the feelings that they have and the ways that they talk about them, we can expect to have a lot of diversity, a lot of variety. And I just want to say again that what I'm trying to do with this podcast is just to respect that diversity. I can't do the kind of work that Lisa Feldman Barrett does. Uh, My brain isn't really um, practiced in that kind of thinking. But what I really do enjoy is talking with people, listening to what they have to say, and marveling in the differences uh, of what different kinds of people have to say, and the range of variety and the wonderful things, the strange things, sometimes the frightening things that we can feel, that we can think, that we can experience, and valuing that individuality is, I think, a really important thing to do in this moment. As we are confronted with technologies that seek to make us into predictable kinds of products that can be serviced through algorithms for the sake of other people's economic benefit. We're at a particular historical point where that issue is becoming a point of conflict. And really big power dynamics are going on with that. But also there are intense conflicts and struggles of power going on right now in terms of gender dynamics. And emotion is at the heart of that. Issues of gender are at the heart of social conflict here in the United States. I mean, if we take a look at the issues of transgender identity and the struggles about whether that's a valid identity that's going to be respected by society or whether it's going to be rejected and we just pretend it's not there. Beliefs about sexuality are in there too. And they really tend to divide Democrats from Republicans. Not every Democrat feels the same way and not every Republican does. But there are strong uh, trends, strong patterns. Uh, Republicans tend to be dismissive of... um, sexual diversity, of gender, fluidity. And Democrats tend to be more accepting of those things. And that is coming to be at the heart of that kind of cultural conflict, that political conflict. Women are more likely to register as Democrats, to vote as Democratic, uh, uh, to vote Democratic when they show up into the polls. And uh, women are more likely to be elected to public office as Democrats, Um, while, you know, men are more likely to register and uh, with and vote for the Republican Party's candidates, Um, which is not to say that all men are Republicans and all women are Democrats. That is not true. 
There are lots of female Republicans and lots of male um, Democrats. However, the pattern on average as that's the phrase that Lisa Feldman Barrett is really wise enough to use. We see that there is a pattern that exists. And so my point is that issues of gender, issues of emotion and gender are intricately connected to the most divisive kinds of social um, dynamics that are going on, political conflict in our society today. So it's something that it seems to me is irresponsible to ignore in this podcast, which is about emotion. So what am I going to do about that? In order to reestablish a gender balance in this podcast, I am going to uh, try to engage. Uh, I'm going to try to have a purposeful effort um, to recruit more men to interview. Not exclusively men, but more men to kind of bring that balance back. And, And now the purpose of having more men as guests on this podcast so that eventually that number evens out with the women trying to get equality, not more men or more women. The purpose of this is not to begin to try to make this a podcast about gender, to begin to, with every emotion, identify and describe the gendered differences between men and women and gender non-binary people in the experience of any emotion, I, you know, I, I can't spend a lot of time doing that. I, it'll, it'll take forever if I do. And this is a qualitative project. So this, this model that I'm using simply is not capable of making coherent, reliable judgments about those differences. And so I'm not going to convert stories of emotional granularity into a podcast about gender. Instead, I'm going to be making a conscious effort to include the voices of a group of people whose speech about their emotions has been, for whatever reason, subdued and often dismissed. Um, And, you know, this is a really interesting thing that when we're looking at emotion, um, the, um, the emotions of men, the fact that they even can have them, has been dismissed. And... I think that we're at a point in the development of our gender ideology, of our gendered politics, that that kind of question becomes something important to begin to explore. Um, Because it's not just a simple issue of um, needing to move forward in promoting women and their needs. But we begin to explore that there are also needs that men have that are not being met for whatever reason. The fact that, for example, the majority of suicides are of men, that's worth paying attention to. The fact that young men are becoming less successful in their employment less successful in romantic relationships, going to college less. That's worth paying attention to. And I don't believe that this is a zero-sum game in which we either pay attention to men or to women. Um, I mean, we're all together here 
creating humanity and we're interacting a lot, uh, quite a bit in really complex ways to create this global civilization that is on the verge of climate collapse and having so many problems. As we do that, as we try to understand each other, um, looking at everybody's needs and seeing them as interconnected, I think is an interesting new way to go. So that maybe as we look at the areas in which some experiences of men emotionally are not being communicated, not being heard as much as they are seen in women, might actually be a way to create um, a society in which everybody's gender, men, women, non-binary, fluid people, can all be recognized as more individual and less stereotypical. That's the area that I'm trying to go with here. So uh, here's what I want you to do to help because I'm going to need some help with this. Um, it's a big effort to find people to be interviewed for this podcast, an effort which I enjoy. I love meeting new people and getting to talk to them about their personal lives. Um, but I need a bit of help with this. Uh, finding men who want to talk about their emotions. Uh, because something's going on with that that's, that's getting in the way of this podcast so far. And I want your help, please, in getting me over that barrier, whatever's causing it. So if you are a man and you are willing to talk about some of your emotional experiences, please get in touch with me. If you are not a man, but you know a man who you think would be interested in being interviewed for this podcast about emotions, please reach out to him and encourage him to get in touch with me. I want to make it clear that I'm not limiting new interviews for this podcast just to men. I want to bring the podcast back into balance by interviewing more men than I have been. But I also want to interview more women because there's so much more emotional territory that I have to cover. So if you are a woman or a gender fluid or non-binary person for that matter, and you want to share your stories of your emotional experiences for this podcast, that's great too. Also, drop me a line and let's find time to talk. I would love to listen to what you have to say. Next week, I will be back with another one of my more traditional podcasts that focuses on one emotion, exploring that from different perspectives. Until then, thank you so much for listening.